Good morning, everyone. Please don't turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. That is my launch pad. (laughs) That is my launch pad. So there's been a little bit of false advertising going on, but it was entirely my fault. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, music team. Uh, Just the music week after week here is is such a blessing, isn't it? And I, I was just standing there making that song my prayer is, is coming up, as I was about to come up and thought, wow, what a fantastic words to pray as we're going to come to his awesome word. And the strength that we need to follow him comes entirely from him. It's not born in somehow our internal strength. It's born in him. And what a, what a beautiful thing it is to know that we're in God's hands. Let me just read to you what 1 Corinthians 16.9 says. It's Paul speaking of his ministry in Ephesians. He's speaking to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were planted in his second, the church there was planted in his second missionary journey. Uh, And then he moved on to a third missionary journey where he spent virtually all of his time, almost all of his time in Ephesus. And this is what he says to the Corinthians about his time as he's experiencing it in Ephesus. He says, For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, And there are many adversaries. There are many adversaries. And as we we think about this short part of a verse, we actually know from from Acts chapter 19 that we have it spelt out in its entirety right there. What was this wide door? Who were these adversaries? What were these struggles that he faced? How was God blessing that ministry so that Paul didn't want to leave it? Um, And so we can turn there, please, Uh, Acts chapter 19. And what we're going to see there is a little snapshot of what we should expect in gospel ministry. What we should expect in gospel ministry. And when I say gospel ministry, I'm not just talking about full-time gospel workers. I'm not just talking about pastors or missionaries or evangelists. What we should expect when we are seeking to haltingly share the gospel with the people around us and talk to them about Jesus Christ, what we should expect. And I'm not going to read the whole thing at once, but I'll just start off with the first point here. And the first point here is that we should expect gospel confusion. We should expect confusion in people's minds about what the gospel is. When we come to people who don't know Christ and even amongst people who say, I'm a Christian. Well, have we asked further? Do we stop there or do we ask more questions? Let's have a look there. Verse 1 through to verse 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, "Uh, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Let's just start by praying as we, as we move into this. Look, God, we are, we are people that need your help. We're not strong vessels, we're, we're people that are just earthen pots. And as we crack and as we break, your glory shines through because you're the strength of our lives. You're the hope of our hearts. You're the forgiveness that we need for our sin. And you're the strength that we need for our ministry. God, let those things uh, dawn on us, break anew in our hearts, uh, be seen afresh in our minds that we may honor you, serve you, and not be surprised as we come up against things in our Christian life and in our desire to seek to share your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've read through the book of Acts, you sigh a great sigh of relief as you come to chapter 19 because Paul finally goes to 
Ephesus. Paul finally goes to Ephesus. Uh, the reason I say that is right back in chapter 16 where he's heading out just at the very start of his, of his first missionary journey. We see him there go and encourage the churches that have been planted in the first missionary journey. And then he's walking up and he's, he's going, Lord, should I go to Asia? He's wanting to spread the gospel anew. And the Holy Spirit forbids him. So he can't go left. All right, well, do I turn right? <laughs> Uh, Do I go to Bithynia and share the gospel? And the Holy Spirit also says, no. And so he carries on down to Troas, which is the closest port to Macedonia. And that's where he gets his Macedonian call. The prominent city in Asia, so if he'd turned left, is Ephesus. So right back there, he was longing to do the same thing that we see him doing in chapter 19, which is going and setting up ministry in Ephesus and getting the gospel out through Asia. And yet at that point in time, the Holy Spirit said no. Um, We also see this happen in uh, chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. And this is the end of his second missionary journey. And he stops in. He stops into Ephesus uh, there. And he's dropping Aquila and Priscilla off there to begin the church planning work, which they did. And yet he can't help himself, so he goes into a uh, a synagogue uh, while he's there and proclaims Christ. And what's striking there is that the people really want to hear more. Explicitly, it says that they want to hear more, but he, he says he needs to be somewhere else. And it's like, Wow, that's really striking. He wouldn't generally pass up an opportunity like that. But the the reality is, uh, most probably, he wanted to get back to Jerusalem in time to celebrate the Passover. So you can see there, when he he comes out of the boat and visits the saints in Caesarea, it also says he goes up, and that's a term for going to Jerusalem, and he would have celebrated the Passover there. Um, So he needed to, to do that, and he said to those people there in Ephesus who were interested... I will return to you if the Lord wills. And this reflects, of course, his memory of chapter 16, where it was not yet the Lord's will for him to serve there. A really interesting thing to note here, if you're familiar with uh, the discussions about interpretation towards the book of Hebrews, is that the church, I'll get there, (laughs) the, the church met in the synagogue for over a year. The church did not come out of that synagogue for over a year. Paul was away for at least a year and possibly more. And in that time, you can see through the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila and also of Apollos when he's there, where are the Christians? They're meeting in the synagogue. They're meeting together in the synagogue. And so when we think about the book of Hebrews, we think of like River Bend Bible Church. <laughs> we think of a church. With a, we don't have a steeple, do we? But we think of these people meeting together in a church, and it confuses us. But if we see a church like the church at Ephesus was, what do we see? Hebrews meeting together in a church, some believing, some not believing, needing to hear about the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And if they reject Jesus Christ, they reject God himself. And walk away from him. Very interesting. I'll leave that with you for your homework. Uh, but that's, a, that's an important thing for us to note as we come here. Well, let's get to uh, what I was initially talking about here, which was uh, gospel, a lack of gospel clarity and what to expect. And we see here that the first people that Paul runs into are people who are spoken of as disciples. They're spoken of as disciples, but we're going to see in Paul's language towards them that he had some alarm bells going off in his mind. He had some alarm bells going off in his mind. What provoked Paul to ask them, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What would provoke Paul to ask them that question? Paul had met many Christians, many who had come to Christ through his own ministry, many who had come to Christ through the ministry of others, and yet this is the only time in the book of Acts that Paul ever asks someone, "Uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? There's there's something going on there in his mind that is making him question uh, that. And then we immediately see Uh, that Paul was right to ask because these people have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
Think about this with me. You'll be familiar with Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It clearly says there that a person who has not received the Holy Spirit is not a child of God. Not a child of God. There is one time in Acts where there's a, a gap between people believing and them receiving the Holy Spirit, and that was with the Samaritans in chapter 8. And we can see very clearly that the reason that happened is so that it would happen when the apostles were there, so that they could see it, witness it, go back to the people in Jerusalem and say, you know what we experienced at Pentecost? These guys experienced exactly the same thing. These Samaritans that you doubt, God desires to save them. And a very similar thing happened in, uh, with Cornelius in chapter 10, where there was no gap. But again, going back and answering the questions of the church in Jerusalem, these guys experienced exactly what we experienced. And yet, so you can see why there was a gap there between people believing and receiving the Holy Spirit in, in chapter 8, because they were the Samaritans. But, but this was generally not Paul's experience, and that's why he's asking them more questions as they, as they say, we've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Next, we want to ask ourselves, well, what kind of disciples were these? What kind of disciples were these if they'd never heard of the Holy Spirit? Um, and so we ask ourselves, were they Jews? Were they Old Testament disciples, I guess you, you might want to say? Well, the, the, the Old Testament mentions the Holy Spirit 79 times. You really can't miss that. You really can't miss that. So they were not Jewish disciples. Well, they answer there that they were baptized into John the Baptist's uh, uh, baptism. Were they John the Baptist's disciples? Well, that's, that's an interesting one. You remember the, the often repeated uh, terminology that, that uh, John the Baptist used when he spoke of Christ. It's spoken of in Luke 3.16. I'll just read that to you. You remember, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Interesting. If you read John chapter 1, and I know you have, John the Baptist repeatedly mentions the Holy Spirit uh, when he's speaking about Christ and unmistakably points towards Jesus Christ. So when we look at these people, we, we, see, we need to see that they, they are seen as believers. They are probably even meeting with the believers, but they don't know the most basic things about the gospel, the basic things about God. And I love how Paul speaks to them. Now, you need to know that Luke generally gives the short version of many of the stories there in, in, the, in uh, Acts. Uh, for example, let me just say that, that this whole incident with these, these men is only 124 words. If you speak 124 words, it takes about a minute and a half. Did this take a minute and a half? No. <laughs> Paul's giving, uh, Luke's giving the gist. He's giving the gist of what happened. So we can see that uh, it probably took longer and he explained more. But what we can see in this <coughs> is that Paul loves them enough to ensure that they know the Lord, that they don't have false assurance. We can see also that he loves them enough to speak politely with them. This is something that we can be very wrong in, where people are wrong, where people are ignorant, where people don't know basic things but are saying they're Christians, that we can, we can be rude when we're told to speak the truth in love. He didn't say to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you supposedly believed? No. He took them at face value. And when he heard of how little they understood of the gospel, he built on what they did know. Oh, you've heard of John the Baptist? Well, let me tell you what he taught. Let me tell you who he was pointing to. He drew them from what they did know <laughs> to Jesus Christ. To Jesus Christ. The one who would come after them. And I love his words there. And it's, again, very shortened there in, 
uh, in this passage, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So, beautiful. We see there that they believed and they were baptized, and as all this was happening and Paul had his hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. <coughs> they received the Holy Spirit. Very interesting here <coughs> that outside of Pentecost, the only other time where we see people speaking other languages, unlearned languages, when they received the Holy Spirit was with Cornelius and here. Cornelius and here. And this is actually a really beautiful thing when we see it with these people because Paul had questioned whether they had received the Holy Spirit. And when they believed, they received the Holy Spirit and God proved it to them. God took away any doubt. What a, what a wonderful thing that God spoke to them in terms that they could understand and assured them that they are his. They are his. So when we think about People that we meet that say they're Christian, uh, it reminds me of, of a, a group, a people group, some believers that we knew from a people group uh, called the Samandang people in Kalimantan, the Western Kalimantan in Indonesia. And they would say that when people came into their area saying we're Christians, we're Christians, they would say, cool, how did you become a Christian? Please tell me your testimony. And you'll very quickly hear if someone knows the gospel. And if they don't know the gospel, they don't trash them, love them and share the gospel with them. Love them and share the gospel with them. So expect, expect a lack of clarity in the gospel. It's something that will come up consistently um, as, we, as we seek to minister. And it's a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel. Acts 19 verse 8 to 10 and the title for this one is Expect Acceptance and Rejection. Expect Acceptance and Rejection. Verse, verse 8. Continually speaking of Paul. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And, and when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew <coughs> from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So, uh, the next aspect of Paul's uh, ministry is very familiar Right throughout Acts, from the very start to the very end, whenever Paul goes to a new place, he goes to the synagogue first. He goes to the Jews first. There are a couple of instances in Acts where he says, I'm going to the Gentiles, but we need to see those, those instances as localized. He's not saying, I will no longer go to the Jews, because as you read on, what happens in the next city? First place he goes to? Synagogue. Synagogue, the people that he meets with at the very end of the book of Acts, the Jewish leaders from Rome. This was, his, this was his practice. He sought out the Jews to give them the gospel first. Um, it's striking as we first look at this that they let him speak in the synagogue for so long. It says they, they, he, they allowed him to speak for three months. Usually it took much less time for people to want to kill him. As he, as he went and spoke there. So apparently the believers had gained significant respect. The people who were coming to Christ through the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos as they were there and still meeting with those people. There must have been a sense of respect there. But they weren't Paul. <laughs> they weren't Paul. The, the powerful preaching of Paul cornered them cornered them to the point where they had to accept or reject. They had to accept or reject. The language here is powerful. It, the main verb is that he spoke boldly. Spoke boldly, and this is in the past continuous, the imperfect tense, which is something that he was continually doing. This was his habit. He was speaking uh, boldly about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next two words there, they are related to the main verb in that they explain how he spoke boldly. And how he spoke boldly, it's all, it also uses language that gives it 
prominence in linguistic terms, something that accentuates what he's doing. And it says there, he's reasoning and he's persuading. This is, this is actually using the, the present tense to speak in the past tense. So we would say that, in similarly ourselves, we would say, and he, was, he just kept on speaking boldly and, and he's reasoning and he's persuading. And that's the kind of language that's being used there and it makes those things stand out. Well, reasoning is the term uh, dialogue, the word from which we get dialogue. Not that he's asking their opinions and <laughs> coming to a conclusion along with them, but that he's giving clear, logical teaching and answering their questions. Clear, logical teaching and answering their questions. And secondly, we see here that he's persuading them. So his arguments were com uh, convincing and compelling. Can you imagine what it would be like to be on the other end of that? Can you imagine? You're a leader of the synagogue and you're giving all the standard answers about the Messiah and this guy knows the Old Testament better than you do. This is Paul. It says in chapter 9 verse 22 that he spoke in the synagogue and proved that Jesus was the Christ. In chapter 17, verse 3, he spoke from the word of God and proved that the Christ had to suffer. He could testify that Jesus rose from the dead because he met him and he was radically transformed by him. Can you imagine being on the other end of that? Incredible. The quiet ministry of Aquila and Priscilla had seen a number of people come to Christ because it says here that only a few, only some uh, opposed him. So, praise the Lord, there had been that ministry, and obviously many people had come through Paul's ministry here, but there were those who just blew up, blew up when they heard this truth, and they couldn't get away with it. And it says, it says there, or, or expresses it there, that their, their antagonism to him was prolonged. It's using the past uh, continuous tense again, that it was hard-hearted, and that it was rebellious, and that it was nasty, that they spoke evil of Christianity, what's called the way there, but that's speaking of Christianity, probably before the congregation. And it's interesting to see Paul's response here. He, he was not one to run away under pressure, but in order to carry out the gospel ministry in Ephesus, he needed some clean air, some clean air, where he wasn't constantly involved in arguments with people who had already made their mind up. So he moved on. It doesn't, the arguments don't help gospel clarity. They, they just cloud it. And so he, he moved on. So finally, the believers come out of the synagogue. They come out of the synagogue. And it's interesting that we don't see them meeting there only on Sundays. The hall of Tyrannus there became a ministry center. Uh, very interesting to me, too, the Hall of Tyrannus, that means the tyrant, <laughs> the tyrant. And so they were meeting there in a hall of a philosopher who's renowned for being a very, very hard man, and Paul is there preaching the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation only through grace. So it's a, a very interesting uh, aspect there. And so the, the same word is used there, the word dialogue, that he's teaching people about Christ and he's answering uh, their questions there. And it says there he was doing that every day. Every day. Tradition has it that he was doing that in the midday rest time. So we might call that a siesta. I know we have members in our congregation who would definitely call that a siesta. Um, the time in the middle of the day where people have a rest and then go on with their work later in the day. So Paul would support himself by making tents, work during the normal working hours, and instead of himself taking a rest, he would preach the gospel during the rest time so that people could come to him. It's actually a very good way to, uh, to work. Um, and, and we can see there that it was uh, amazing the, the way that God used that, um, used that time. It says there in verse 10 that after two years of ministering in that way, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So all there would be speaking in the general sense, speaking of people across the entire region, both Jew and Gentile. 
this is huge. This is huge, the way the gospel spread there. Now, it doesn't say that Paul himself traveled through all of Asia sharing that word. Most likely, he stuck where he was at the, at the hall of Tyrannus and preached the gospel, discipled the believers, and discipled an army of evangelists who would go out through the whole area and preach the gospel through Asia. What's the secret to church growth? You could get a gazillion books on that, none of which are at Grace Books. <laughs> Preaching the gospel, discipling the believers. That's, that's not a secret. That's actually how you go about gospel ministry. That is the secret to church growth. Just do what we're told. Carry out the Great Commission. Go, preach, teach, baptize, and Christ is with you always. Christ is with you always. There's your secret for you. You can take that home. <laughs> I want to show you in the next section, we can see there how it was that Christ was with them and how we can see that as he seeks to draw sinners to himself in Ephesus. And that's verse 11 through 20. And the title in this, in this part is, Expect God to Draw People. Expect God to be at work in people's lives. This is a, a beautiful thing that we see. Paul's there. He's, he's preaching away faithfully. And yet we can see that God is directly acting in people's lives to draw them to himself. Right at the same time. And in many cases, Paul had no clue what was going on. <laughs> At that point in time, this was God who was at work. Verse 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles in the hands of Paul, or by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This shouldn't be surprising to us, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Very interesting there that he says this is what apostles do. This is what apostles do. This is not what everyone does. These believers had had their prayers answered, certainly. Just like you and I have our prayers answered. But this was something that apostles did. Incredible miracles and very clearly uh, set out there. So what we see Paul doing here, what we see of Peter in Acts chapter 5, is not normative for every person. It was what God was doing specifically through the apostles uh, at that time. Now, as you look at that passage, I want you to ask a question. Very important as we interpret Scripture that we ask, what does it say and what doesn't it say? And, and I just want to clarify something because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this verse. Does it say that Paul took hold of cloths and prayed for those cloths and people took those cloths and put them on people? Is that what it says? It doesn't say that at all. It doesn't say that at all. Very important for us to understand that. Uh, it, Robert Shade, in his uh, good commentary on the book of Acts, says that the words used for cloths and aprons were used to describe the bandanas that laborers wore around their heads. I'm trying to use as much Spanish as I can today. Uh, bandanas that people would, would wear around their heads and aprons that a worker would, would use in his work. Interesting. Interesting. Another aspect that we need to understand that will give us a bit of clarity is Ephesus was renowned for witchcraft. Renowned for witchcraft. There, are a lot of, there was a lot of witchcraft going around in the ancient world, but the Ephesians were so renowned for it that to put a written curse on someone was called an Ephesian letter. So very, very much something that was always in their minds and looking for that. So two things to hold in your mind. Uh, as, we, as we look at this, and these people would have been hearing Paul preach, they would have been seeing him praying for people and seeing, wow, wow. Like You can imagine uh, people who had been involved in witchcraft seeing true miracles 
incredible, creative miracles that God did the same way as he did through Christ. These people looking on and going, oh, what is that? And then interpreting it through their own worldview. Interpreting it through their own worldview. So what do they do when they they start interpreting it through their own worldview? That's awesome. For you, you can't turn it off, can you? It's it's all good. We love you. (laughs) Gave me a chance to breathe a minute. That's, That's good. But if I, go, if I go 30 seconds over, we can all talk to Ella afterwards. Um, so you can imagine Paul there. These people are looking on going, if I could grab something of his, I can take it and put it on someone through their own mental thinking that is a power object. This is how witchcraft works. People take hold of power words and power objects and think that that will cause something. And so Paul's there. He's sweating like I am currently. Um, he's got his bandana and he takes his bandana off and he turns around and comes back and it's like, he's nicking my stuff. And he, he finishes up because he wants to go and teach and so he takes off his apron and puts it down, comes back after te- My apron! I took my apron! And these people would, think about this, take these things away and put them on people and people would be healed. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting, isn't it? Uh, Stunning to me. Absolutely stunning. Who's the healer? God. Does God work through witchcraft? No. (laughs) These people were as wicked as they could be, yet God spoke to them in ways they could understand. God drew their hearts in ways they could understand. God was working in ways that Paul had no idea about so that the name of Christ would be extolled and that people would be open to the message so that it would hit home. It's amazing. Another example of this is in verse 13. And I must admit to finding this one quite funny. Uh, Verse 13 says there, and I'm sure you've read it before, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, uh, seven sons of a, a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, well, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom, whom was the evil spirit leaped upon them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. These men were not truly Jewish. They were as pagan as they could be. They were probably related in some way uh, to, to the high priestly family. There is actually no actual high priest called Sceva in history. They were probably big noting themselves, uh, you might say. Uh, But they were an example of exorcists, itinerant exorcists who used to go around in the ancient world. And there are many manuscripts of what these exorcists would say, and generally it's nonsense. It's a mixture of power words and the use of the names of deities to try and uh, chase off the spirits. And one aspect of that, that that often came up was they came across as very foreign. And the more foreign, the better. And this is why Jewish exorcists were particularly popular at the time because they sounded so foreign and they acted so foreign, people thought they were more powerful. And so these guys try to use Jesus' name. They try to use him as a power word. They try to treat him like they would any other called so-called deity. And you just know it's not going to end well for them. There are instances in Scripture where God uses Satan and uses demons for his own glory and for the good of the church. We can see that there. Theologians call that the the servant role of Satan, that against his will, God uses him to bring about his own ends. It's a very uh, amazing thing as we look at God's sovereignty and his his power uh, that God works even through them 
in his ruling over them for his glory and our good. So you see the spirit here acting according to character. He sees these guys and he realizes, you've got nothing on me. You've got nothing on me. And he beats them up and he tears their clothes off and shames them. This is what Satan does. And they run away scared. And what happens? What's the outcome? And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. No demon wants the name of Jesus to be extolled. No demon wants that. No demon wants people to fear God or to come to Christ. But they're not the boss. God's the one that used them there. And again, we see God drawing people to himself in ways that they can understand. In ways that they can understand. Well, let me ask you, what was it that drew you to Christ? What was it that God used to draw you to Christ? I can just about guarantee it wasn't some big miracle. Even in New Testament times, most people did not come to Christ through miracles. In all of history, most people have not come to Christ through miracles. And yet God knows how to get through to you in ways that you can understand. God can break down the strongest defenses. He can soften the hardest heart. He can convince the most skeptical mind. So many examples of that in history. He can motivate the most apathetic person. He can draw out the most fearful soul. He can humble the most arrogant heart. And he can bring the most confident person to the end of himself. And God does that. He has done that. He continues to do that. What we do is we do what Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and Paul did. We share the gospel and we answer people's questions. But we can't ever forget that God is the one that draws people to himself. God is the one that does that. Expect him to do these things. Expect him to be in work, at work in the people around you. Pray for them and be ready for the little bit that he gives you, which is to clearly share the gospel so that he will open their eyes through that and save them through that. Wonderful opportunity that we have. The last snapshot of God's work confirming the message here is from verse 18 and 20, 18 through 20. Another wonderful part of the passage. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burnt them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000 drachma. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Talk about a miracle. Followers of Satan become followers of Jesus Christ. So clear. And they came and they confessed and divulged their practices. This was not telling stories about the old days. To confess is agreeing with God about your behavior, your life, your heart. Looking back on it and seeing it how God sees it. And these people look back with regret and shame on those things. And certainly a deep relief that all that had been forgiven because Jesus Christ had personally borne the wrath for every one of those sins. Uh, a beautiful thing we hear as they came and confessed. Another aspect of this is we see that they dramatically walked away from their old life. Dramatically walked away from their old life. You see, they didn't uh, sell their books on magic. That's interesting. They were worth a lot of money, but they didn't sell them. They, they burnt them publicly. One drachma, or one piece of silver, was a day's wage for a laborer. A day's wage for a laborer. I'm going to do maths, and I know that's, that's dangerous for me, so you guys can check it and then hand in your homework to Mr. Philipson, and he'll possibly give you a rubber band or what he, he does afterwards if you get it right. But if we think about uh, what a laborer's wage might be, a very low wage for a laborer might be $20 an hour. Don't question that because we could have a debate on it. Times that by eight, 
$160 a day, times that by 50,000, $8 million. This was a huge amount of money. A huge amount of money. This is, this is powerful. Think of them as they had been so proud of who they were once. This is reminding me of Paul. All that stuff, I consider that just the most vile thing now. I consider it like trash. I consider it like dung. If I can have Jesus. If I can have Jesus. They, they looked at the things they had and didn't look at their monetary value. They looked at what those things might do to someone else. And they wouldn't do it. They wanted to get, get rid of it. This is a beautiful picture of what it means to repent. They were not cleaning themselves up for Christ. He'd already done that. He's the only one that cleanses us. He's the only one that makes us worthy. But they were horrified and grieved at their past life and they wanted nothing to do with it. It didn't mean they never struggled with sin again. But they knew whose side they were on and they loved him more than anything. Loved him more than anything. You know that Jesus is worthy of anything that you lay down for him. He's worthy of anything that you sacrifice for him. The Bible speaks of him as being the hidden treasure. You go away, sell everything because you just want him. He's the pearl of great price. I don't want anything but him. That's who I want. The Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to him. Our willingness to follow Christ at times when it's costly or inconvenient or tiring or painful tells a lot about how we truly see him. One area where Christ being the most precious part of your life is crucial is that it keeps you strong when the world turns against you. And this is what we're going to see in the next part. And I'm just going to go quickly over the next part because I love you. Um, we'll see that it wasn't just the Jews who lashed out against God's people and against the preaching of the gospel. We see the Ephesians doing the same thing. So this is uh, verses 21 through 41. Uh, and what we expect there is we expect trouble. We expect trouble. Verse 21. Now after these events, events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I had been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Uh, we see this is the beginning of Paul's long trip back towards uh, Jerusalem. Uh, he wants to go to Rome, but he doesn't realize at this point that he's going to get an all-expenses-paid visit back to Rome. <laughs> Thanks, Nero, uh, later on. But let's read on. Let me go from verse 23, and we'll see the disturbance here. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, <coughs> brought no little business to the craftsmen. Uh, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, you men know that, know that from this business we have our wealth. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in also, almost all Asia, uh, Paul, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that, God, that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she uh, may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now as we look at this account, we can see that, that Demetrius is right to be scared. He's right to be scared. People throughout Asia had put their trust in Jesus Christ. And we can easily picture Paul saying, God's made with hands are not God's. You can absolutely hear him saying that and virtually guarantee that he was. It would affect their income. The temple of Artemis was massive. 
It was considered a a wonder at the time, and people would come from all over the place to visit there, and you can imagine them all buying these little silver shrines that these guys would sell. So it was going to affect them and also affect uh, Ephesus as a city. Well, if no one thinks very highly of the temple of Artemis, well, who's coming to Ephesus? It would affect uh, the status uh, of that of that city. Let me ask you, what what topics tend to worry people? What topics tend to upset them? Money, for instance. Religion. National pride. Well, Christianity hit the trifecta. Uh, with that and we can see below if you read down because I'm not going to read it they screamed for two hours this is people who have just gone nuts angry screaming for two hours beneath all of that though you can bet there are other things going on in these guys hearts the gospel smashes into the heart of sinful humans and it deeply offends them It begins by telling them an uncomfortable truth. There is a creator God and he's angry with you. Very uncomfortable truth. The gospel offends their dignity because they think they're good. And the gospel says you're not. It offends their morals because it points out how twisted their morals are and how far they are from the standard of God. It offends their pride because it gives them no way that they can work their way out. Of the situation, it says, You must come to Jesus Christ and accept Him by faith alone, and He is the one that saves you. You are not the one that saves yourself. It comes against their pride. He died the death required for their sin. You know, when God opens your eyes, nothing's more beautiful. Nothing's more beautiful. But to the sinful heart, it's offensive, it's appalling, it's hurtful. This is a reality for us to expect, to expect, to accept, to embrace. We as God's representatives cannot expect to be popular in this world. We embrace that. That does not mean we don't act wisely to remove ourselves at times of danger. This is what we see Paul doing right through Acts He would face opposition. The local believers would say, don't you think you should move on? (laughs) And he would listen to them and move on and he would not compromise. He would do exactly the same thing in the next town. Preach the gospel boldly and the next town and the next town and the next town. And when the local believers advised him to move on, he moved on. And this is what we see him doing there, uh, right here. But there comes a time, and if you read on in Acts, it's actually the very next chapter where he says... The Holy Spirit is telling me to go to Jerusalem and I know I'm going to suffer. And he walked towards it. So God gives us wisdom, but it's not to walk away from hard situations. It's to walk away into fresh ministry and clear ground, but but not to run away from trouble because trouble is going to meet you wherever you go. If you know him, if you stand for him. We see here in a beautiful way God protects his church. Massive crowd, incredibly dangerous situation. And you can see there the Jews are thinking, well, let's make sure it's not us they think that's carrying this on. And so they try and get up and say, it's not us, it's not us, and these guys are terrible. And you can imagine the things that have been said all through Acts and the people just shout them down. God's protection over them that he wouldn't allow these people to listen to that. His protection over this small church. A wise civil leader gets up, calms everybody down. God protected his church. But we need to know that in this world we will have tribulation. But take courage. He has overcome the world. He who is within you is greater than he who is in the world. Just one last thing here, very short, Acts 20 verse 1, expect that believers need encouragement, expect that believers need encouragement, verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said, farewell and departed for Macedonia. This is a crucial part of Paul's ministry. 
encouraging people. He did it to the Galatian churches in chapter 14, the Philippian church in chapter 16, the Ephesians in chapter 20, and also the Macedonian churches, the church at Troas. Encouraging Christians is crucial. Speaking truths that strengthen people's hearts and their faith and help them to see Christ. All of us need that. That's why we meet together. That we may have the strength that God gives us to walk forwards in our Christian life. The people who are sitting around you right now, they need encouragement. And the wonderful thing is God can use your life. God can use your words to build up your fellow Christians. It's a great thing to have in your mind as you're, you're, you're looking at coming together as, Lord, who can I encourage today? Who can I help to stand firm today? Who can I encourage that they're forgiven, that they're loved in Christ today? Let's pray together. Lord, we are your children, your, your weak vessels, people who need you every second. We have nothing without your grace, without the mercy you've poured on us, without the forgiveness that so freely flows in our lives. And Father, we just long that you would shine through us. And we pray that you'd give us hope as we walk into this life, as we interact with people in this world, that you would show us that you are working powerfully, that you would work in us powerfully, that we have, have courage to speak your gospel clearly. Lord, help us to dive into your word so that we may be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. And Lord, let us never doubt that you're the one drawing people to yourself. Yours is the mighty hand. Help us never to see anyone as too hard. No religion is too hard. No country is too hard. No person of any background is too hard. But that you can draw people to yourself. Please do that, Lord. We long to see you glorified in this world. And we long to see people saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.